everybody. Worldview Discussions, episode 16. We're going to talk about problems with the flood and the conquest of Canaan. So really intense study, actually, in the 20 minutes that we got here. So let's see what I can get done. So really intense stuff. So I think we got to start with just something light. Don't you think? Quick question for you. What did the dad buffalo say to his kid when he was leaving for work? Bye, son. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Dad jokes. Dad jokes. So, well, in the last episode, I talked to you about the book of Job. And I think I actually got ahead of myself there because in my brain, I had thought that we had already talked about the problems with um, the, the claims that are made against Christians as being hypocrites. And we're, we'll actually get to that in the next episode. So here, here we've been addressing issues with scripture. We talked about Job last week. And big picture, we're in our discussion on morality. And kind of my logic here is people see um, morality as something that is presented in the Bible in a very inconsistent way. So they, they struggle with the book of Job and evil and suffering. And they also struggle with the, the flood and the conquest. And yet God commands not to murder. So I, I want to put those two together, even though, my goodness, seriously, we could, we could spend an entire, an entire class. I mean, like, tons of episodes on just the flood or just the conquest period. But um, we'll, we'll just see what we can do in, in 20 minutes here. Real quick, I want to show you actually, or have you listened to a video that Richard Dawkins put together, who is an atheist uh, and he's a biologist and he's very well known for writing the book, The God Delusion. And it's become very influential. So I want you to listen to this quick three minute video where he critiques the God of the Old Testament. And guys, this is not easy to listen to. It's really disturbing. I mean, he does not believe God exists. And so he says some pretty awful things about our, our God and our Lord. And so I kind of want to give you a heads up there. And also, there are some pretty disturbing examples he brings up. And so if you've got kids listening to this right now, just want to give you a heads up. You might want to listen to it yourself first and then see if you're comfortable with having your kids listen to it later. So here we go. The son of your father or of your mother, or your son or daughter, or the spouse whom you embrace, tries to secretly seduce you, saying, let us go and serve other gods. This is God's advice on what to do to a friend or family member who suggests you believe in another deity. You must kill him. Your hand must strike the first blow in putting him to death. You must stone him to death since he has tried to divert you from Yahweh, your God. The God of the Old Testament has got to be the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, 
petty, vindictive, unjust, unforgiving, racist, an ethnic cleanser urging his people on to acts of genocide. If God doesn't set a good moral example, who does? Abraham, the founding father of all three great monotheistic religions, the man who would willingly make a burnt offering of his son Isaac? Maybe not. How about Moses, he of the tablets which said, Thou shalt not kill? Well, the same man, it says in the book of Numbers, was incensed by the Israelites' merciful restraint towards the conquered Midianite people. He gave orders to kill all male prisoners and older women. But all the women and children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive, alive for, for yourselves. How is this story of Moses morally distinguishable? from Hitler's rape of Poland, or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. So let's leave Moses out of it. But there are lesser characters facing somewhat more everyday moral dilemmas. Maybe they provide a better role model. In the book of Judges, a priest was traveling with his wife in Gibeah. They spent the night in the house of an old man, but during supper, a mob came to demand that the host hand over his male guest. So that we may know him. Yes, in the biblical sense. Well, the old man replied, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man, do not so vile a thing. So enjoy yourselves by raping and humiliating my daughter, but show a proper respect for my guest, who is, after all, male. Whatever else this strange story might mean, it surely tells us something about the status of women in this religious society. I think what really stands out to me in that is that that final example that Dawkins gives uh, from the book of Judges. And I want to say this is just such a clear example of how Dawkins just does not know how to read his Bible. So Dawkins is coming to actually the same conclusion that the author of Judges is coming to. So that this priest is not being glorified or accepted for his actions. The book of Genesis or of Judges is trying to show how messed up everybody is seven times. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Four times it says in those days Israel had no king. And I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Richard Dawkins has never read the book of Judges from beginning to end. And that's just such an important thing to do to to really understand what's going on. And so how do we respond to Dawkins? He claims that God is commanding genocide in the conquest period. And uh, I would assume he would have equal issues with the flood. And you're not going to be surprised to hear me say, I think we need to learn how to read our Bible better. I think we need to, to challenge him to look at the, the Bible from a different perspective than what, what he's coming at. And, and I think there's actually some things that we can highlight. So I, I want to make just a couple philosophical points, and then I want to jump into our four contexts and see if I can throw some ideas your way. And guys, I'm so sorry. 
I'm going to say a lot in here and it's going to be fast. Um, and so there, there, there might be some more things you want to talk to me about later. So feel free. I'd love to. So first off, just a couple of philosophical points. Um, one is just thinking about this idea. If, if you make a judgment about the flood, then if you do that, you're assuming in your judgment that it happened in some way in your line of thinking. And therefore, well, well guess what? There's a whole bunch of other things about God that's true as well. And so if you're critiquing the God of the Bible for bringing the flood or for bringing the, the conquest on Canaan, then one, obviously you're acknowledging that there's a God that exists when you do it. And everything from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, we need to process and have a part of this judgment that you're making. It just seems really unfair and inconsistent to just jump into Genesis 6 through 9, or just jump into the conquests in the book of Joshua and make a critique there. So I think that just has blinders on, and that's not a very consistent or, or fair way to analyze things. And a second philosophical point is what we brought up uh, a few episodes ago, that if there is no God, then there is no standard of what's right and wrong. And of course, if, if there is a God, then wouldn't it make sense that he would have the authority to bring about judgments on humanity? And yes, of course, these judgments um, we find in our 21st century kind of American Western world, uh, we find uh, disturbing, right? We've got friends of ours that are skeptics and they find it very disturbing to hear that God is judging when they're the authority of their own lives. But of course, what if there really is a God who, who made everything and it would make sense that he's the standard uh, and we are not? So th those are just a couple of philosophical points. But I want to spend the majority of our time diving into the four contexts and how are we doing here? So I got, oh, I got 10, <laughs> I got 10 minutes to do this. So I'll try to behave, guys. And uh, if I go a little bit over, sorry. So let's look, look, look at these four contexts with me. And again, just a couple points about the flood and the conquest period. First off, reader's context. Remember, this, this topic of reader's context is in regards to the ideas that we bring to our Bible reading. And you know what? This is true for Richard Dawkins, as well as for you and me as, as Christians. We all bring... Uh, certain perceptions and ideas to our Bible reading. And when people read the Bible at just a, a cursory level and want to claim that this is what the Bible says, so that is what happened. I want to I wanna think about that for a second. I want to say, actually, the Bible doesn't say anything. And I'm, I'm not trying to be cute here. I'm trying to make a point that... Whenever anyone reads the Bible, they're actually in the process of interpreting it. No, no one reads the Bible for what it says. That, that's, that does not exist. Anytime anyone's opening up the Bible and reading it, they're making choices as, and, and they're interpreting. To be honest, we're actually reading. What we're reading in English is already a whole bunch of interpretive decisions made by authors uh, sorry, by uh, translators in the Greek and Hebrew. But um, 
the, the point I'm trying to make is we all bring our expectations and interpretive methods to the text. We all do this, whether you're Richard Dawkins or you and me. So I, I would like to also just add the point that this is actually not uh, necessarily an issue of believing the Bible as inspired. So this wouldn't be something Dawkins would say, but I get nervous when I hear Christians say something like, if you don't take the Bible literally, then you must not believe the Bible's inspired. And and I want to just encourage people to, to think through, what do we mean by literally? And I think what is meant is what the author intended, right? And if that's what we're getting at, what is the author intending by this? Then I got to say, I'm on board. If it means uh, what they think the text is clearly saying, um, then maybe I have some more questions about that. So, because what sometimes we think is clear, especially in the literature like Genesis, which guys is 3000 years old and was written to a group of people thousands of years ago that live in a different culture than us, I think that we just have to come to the Bible with tons of humility and open-mindedness. And uh, so that just continually is, is my encouragement for you guys. So uh, historical context, what could we say about the flood and the conquest? Well, you may or may not be aware of this, but the flood narrative in Genesis has tons of similarities to other flood stories in the ancient Near East. Uh, one in particular is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a Babylonian flood story with crazy parallels. Uh, there's a, a huge boat that a god kind of secretly commands the, the hero to build um, as the other gods are wanting to wipe out humanity. And he sends out three birds after the flood uh, to see if there's dry land. He, he lands on a mountain and ends up making a sacrifice afterwards. So the, the, the parallels there are striking. And, and of course, all the animals are brought in as well. And by the way, the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, according to many Bible scholars, predates the, the story of Genesis. I'm being careful in how I say that. I'm not talking about the event of the flood. I'm talking about the story in Genesis and the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so that that's interesting to me. And there are some interesting differences too. The, the gods are trying to wipe out humanity here. And yet it's very clear in Genesis 6 through 9, God is desiring to keep humanity. He doesn't want to wipe them all out, He right? Because he, he finds Noah and his family. Uh, they find favor. And so God, um, it is a kind of a, re a reset, but God isn't wiping out humanity completely. And, and I know that there's still some disturbing things there for us, but I think the differences with the Epic of Gilgamesh, I think that's actually really significant and that God makes a covenant with Noah. I think, I think the whole narrative is supposed to highlight how different God is maybe from these other gods in the, in the Epic of Gilgamesh story. God is committed to humanity and, sorry, I'm kind of going on a tangent. It actually says the beginning of the flood narrative that humans are all messed up and evil. And it actually says that at the very end in Genesis 9, same thing. And I think that just highlights more to, to show God's grace and his commitment to humanity because um, the flood didn't change the issue. So, all right, I got to keep going.
What about in the conquest period? Historical context stuff. Anything we could learn from the ancient Near East? Turns out the whole language of wiping people out to destroy them, utterly destroy them. In Hebrew, the word is cherem. That was common ancient Near Eastern war language. And what's really interesting is there's tons of examples of this in the ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, there were always survivors. So it's kind of like saying Duke slaughtered North Carolina last night. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. They don't look that great this year. Uh, we know that that means they didn't literally slaughter them. And so that's interesting. And uh, uh, maybe there's something there for us to consider and think about. So let me transition to literary context here. Just a couple things to keep in mind um, about how we read this these texts. And again, we're wanting to understand the message that the author's trying to present. I, I'm not interested in continuing my ideas or my paradigms. I want to see what, what's the author challenging me with. So um, I want to offer three interpretations for you guys and explain them just a little bit. I'm going to give you a little detail. So how can I read these, these narratives? Well, the first one is the one that you guys are most familiar with, and that would be the newspaper approach, I call it. And this would see the event of the flood in the conquest period as journalistic accounts, kind of like a newspaper where you're reading the details. The, the details that are written are taken at face value, and this is a historical book, and it's giving a historical account of things. And that may well be exactly the right way to interpret it and to read it. And so that's option one. And I think that's the option that Dawkins is zooming in on and critiquing. And I think even our comments that we made about uh, the standard of morality and thinking about how to read the biblical story and evaluate God uh, throughout the whole biblical story are helpful things that could maybe challenge someone who's having trouble with this. There's two other approaches to highlight. One, the, the second one is what I like to call the smack talk approach. And the smack talk approach, it, what I get, what I mean by that is it's a way to critique Israel's neighbors and their nations and their gods. So the other nations had flood stories and gods who are bringing those flood stories. And so the, the focus for those other nations is what is the character of those gods? And to me, it really stands out that the character of God in the Bible is very different than the character um, of the, the, the gods of Babylon, per se. And this is lost on us. We're just not even in that conversation. We jump into it with our perceptions, right, today about God. And, and I want to say that there's something to this that's worth thinking about. I need to think like an ancient Israelite would think and an ancient Babylon person would think. And the more I can learn and get into their world, um, this, this might help me actually change my perception of these texts a little bit. And as I mentioned, it was common to have um, this kind of hyperbolic language. And so there are some Bible scholars that are very comfortable with the flood 
uh, though it says it's universal, it was a regional flood. It, it, maybe it's anchored in some event that took place, um, but it's the, the, the author of Genesis is using exaggerated language to make a theological claim about God and a critique of the neighbors uh, of Israel so that the Israelites can think about um, who their God is and who the gods of the other nations are. And that's intriguing to me because, boy, don't they run after the gods of those other nations. One thing to keep in mind, um, you'll actually see evidence of this when the Bible says that God totally wiped out Israel in Jeremiah 25, 9. God says, I will utterly wipe them out. It's the same Hebrew phrase used in the conquest period. And yet, clearly, God didn't utterly wipe out uh, uh, Judah. Um, Obviously, there were tons of survivors left. Um, and you actually see this happening in the conquest. In Joshua 11, it says that, that um, the, um, the Amalekites were wiped out. or Sorry, the Anakites were wiped out. And then a couple chapters later, they're fighting more Anakites. <laughs> um, th- this actually happens quite a bit in the conquest narrative. And that begs the question, what's going on here? Do I need to read... Uh, some of these passages with a little bit more nuance. One one more uh, interpretation to uh, bring up, and I save this for the end. Oh dear, it's 21 minutes. Sorry, guys. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Um, uh, one final interpretation option is that the the flood story and the conquest period is all about God bringing judgment on giants. And I know, I know. What did I just say? So if you remember, in Genesis 6, it talks about the sons of God having um, taking the daughters of man as wives, and the Nephilim are the offspring. So there's one line of thinking, this is actually a very old uh, tradition of interpretation, that the sons of God were spiritual beings that rejected, rebelled against God, and took human wives, and had half-divine, half-human offspring that were talked about as giants, and they're called Nephilim. And go to Numbers 13, verse 33. It actually talks about the Nephilim again there. And the Nephilim are connected to the Anakim, who are known as the sons of Anak. So if you just do a search for some of these words and these terms, they're also called the Rephaim, R-E-P-H-A-I-M. King Og in Deuteronomy 2 is described as a, as a, uh, as a giant. And of course, you guys know about Goliath, uh, who is from Gath. And do a search for Gath, and you'll see it often talking about these huge people. So what if the flood and what if the conquest period was about God getting rid of these individuals who are who whose very existence is in utter rebellion to God's create creation order of things where the spiritual beings are to be staying in heaven and the human beings are of course to stay on earth and God is wanting the human beings to rule and reign and uh, one day God's game plan is that we will rule even over the angels and the spiritual beings um, that seems to be very clear in the biblical narrative. So I know that one just sounds just off the charts crazy. I actually think there's a decent amount there worth considering. So 
big picture, Bible context, just make a point here. The heart of God throughout, pardon me, the heart of God throughout Genesis to Revelation is that God wants to bring all the nations to himself. Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. In Isaiah 14, verse 9, God wants to restore Assyria to him. Um, Egypt is a nation that God calls to him. Um, and boy, don't you all see this in the book of Acts? It's all happening. The heart of God is revealed here. And in Revelation 7, 9, you have all the, the, the tongues, tribes, and nations before the throne. And, and my goodness, a, if this was a genocide that God was wanting to do in the conquest, then what's going on with Rahab, right? I just, I, just, I love Rahab's story. It's amazing. Here you have this Canaanite prostitute who acknowledges who God is, and she's saved. If, if this was a genocide thing, she wouldn't have been saved. So I, I'd like to put it like this. This is not about ethnicity. It is about um, ethics. This is an ethically driven thing, not an ethnically driven thing. This is about theology and about um, who God is and who these other spiritual beings are and about humanity and about the worship of other gods and all this. And so I think that's really important. So if there's anything that I've highlighted here, maybe it's that sometimes reading the Bible isn't as easy as we think it is. And we've, we've got to be really careful when, um, when we talk about how to read the Bible and figuring out what it says. And um, what I don't want us to do is be like Richard Dawkins, who just takes small little sections and, and he doesn't read them in context. So um, maybe send me a, a note in the classroom uh, if you guys want to, or an email. We can talk more about this stuff. Sorry, I've gone over. I knew I would. 26 minutes. Yeah. Um, you know what I want to do? Just real quick. I want to pray. Can I pray uh, for you guys and for, I want to pray for Richard Dawkins. And, um, and for all those that we maybe come in contact with, or maybe who are dealing with some of these issues, um, God, I pray that you would be a light to Richard Dawkins, that he would, that he would be saved. And I pray that he would write another book and not, and it wouldn't be called the God delusion, but it would be all about, um, the God who saves. And I pray for all those that that are in our lives who are struggling with how they view you. And I pray, God, that we could be an encouragement to them, that maybe there's stuff even in this lesson that could be an encouragement. And I pray you would draw them to you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.